This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Coming up next on Plains FM, the Shetland and Orkney Connection, brought to you by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society. Played by Shetland Band Homebrew, signal 8.30pm the last Monday each month for the Shetland and Orkney Connection, produced by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society and broadcast on Plains FM 96.9, either directly in Canterbury or streaming live globally on broadband, or available for three months after the broadcast via podcast on the website www.plainsfm.org.nz. Hello again and welcome to the November edition of the Shetland and Orkney Connection. It is presented by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society and is promoted by Community Radio, Plains FM 96.9. The program is broadcast at 8.30pm on the last Monday of each month and is repeated on Monday two weeks later at noon. Well, today Helen and Jan could not be with me and I was a bit concerned I would have to do the program on my own and hoped I would not lose my voice during the recording. Luckily for me, Helen's cousin, Peter Anderson, has stepped into the breach. Thank you so much, Peter. Some of you might remember Peter as we interviewed him a few months ago after he and his wife had returned from a visit to Shetland. But as I say, Peter, thank you for saving me. Thank you, Heather. It's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) First, we have a few short snippets of news. Recently, Shetland has been visited by a large pod of orca. There was a picture of them killing a sea lion. A bit gruesome, actually. It was, yeah. After the success of last year's Christmas tractor parade, they're planning another this year. Corrigal Farm Museum has been closed for a while, with no sign of it reopening, sadly. Yes, it's rather a shame, as I visited several times and found it very interesting, if you could see through the smoke. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure it is. (laughs) During this year in Westray, a group of young people have been working away on the community outreach project Canoe Crafters. One of the first things was to build two Selway Fisher designed prospector canoes. It's been a great success, and on one day they had a rotating crew of around 20 folk. The Canoe Crafters project has been made possible thanks to the National Laureate. Lottery Heritage Fund. Yes, I think the well, the canoes have been finished, and they have had a, a trial run in the water. Mm. Yeah, which was a, you know, it's great to keep the oh, young ones occupied. Mm. Yes, definitely. Mm. Now, a few things from the past: the Bakehouse and Harry New House, as it is called, was built in the late nineteenth century for John Merriman to retire to after many years working for the Hudson's Bay Company. He had died in 1890 and the property remained empty for a while. It found a new lease of life as a joiner and wheelwright shop run by Robert Kent from Firth. 
the business was later run by John Etkin until he moved to Edinburgh, when it passed to John Rich. Rich gave it up after the outbreak of World War I in order to work in military schemes in Orkney. After the war, it was reopened by Robert Flett until he moved the business to a purpose-built workshop next to his house. Newhouse had another change of use in the late 1930s when Stanley Sinclair Flett opened a bakehouse and shop there. The, out- the outbreak of World War II saw a sharp increase in trade as he supplied bread to the Coir Army Camp up the Stony Hill Road. Stanley was renowned for his excellent wedding cakes, and many a happy couple and Harry celebrated their big day with a slice of cake from Newhouse Bakehouse. It closed in the very late 1950s, but Stanley carried on with a new shop at his home in Hammersmith, next door, which ran until 1969. And did you know that Harry is the only parish in Orkney that is landlocked? No, I certainly didn't Mm. know that. Mm. That's interesting. Mm. This little piece came from the the Caithness Brook project. The Orkney hood was discovered in a peat bog in 1867 near the farm of Groatsetter in Tankiness on Orkney. It's thought to be one of, if not the oldest, textile finds ever found in Scotland now held in the National Museum of Scotland, but a good replica is held in Orkney Museum. The anaerobic environment presented by the peaty soils prevented the organic fabrics from breaking down and decomposing, which meant the garment was kept in a state of preservation for 1,700 years. It's incredible, isn't it? It is, yes. It's thought that it belonged to a child, but the bottom part was reused from an adult's garment and stitched onto the hem of the hood. We don't know much about Iron Age dress. A dearth of textiles surviving from the Iron Age and very little in the way of human depictions in native art haven't left much for us to reconstruct how Iron Age folk dressed. The little early art that we do have comes from the Pictish period and it would seem that hoods and hooded garments were common, which is understandable given the Scottish weather. Oh, it's not that bad, the weather. <laughs> yeah, yeah. the hood is worn on the head and is attached to the, the piece of fabric that lies over the shoulders like a cape. Mm. It would be quite warm and it would keep, instead of a scarf, it would keep you, you know, the wind from going mm. around your neck. Mm. And the reusing of garments and hand-me-downs was happening. Yeah, then, yeah, well, I now. mean, probably to make it, would have taken yeah. quite a while, you know, yeah. and you wouldn't want to throw it out in a hurry. Amazing yet. that that survived. It has, yeah. yeah. Mm. Right, in 2023 is the 40th anniversary of Britain's biggest ever gold bullion robbery, the Brinks Matt Heist in 1983, and was marked with a Channel 4 television documentary. Among those featured was Orcadian detective Bill Miller, who retired to the island of Stronsay. He played a major role in bringing to justice some of the villains behind the £20 million crime. In 1992, then a detective sergeant in London, Bill Miller won a prize from an Old Bailey judge for an investigation carried out in the highest traditions of the force. It was not the only commendation that he received after joining the Metropolitan Police in the 1960s. In 1973, then a detective constable, 
he received a commendation from the Commissioner of the London Force, Sir Robert Mark, for his outstanding courage. Despite having ammonia squirted in his face, he tackled two men armed with a sawn-off shotgun. He must have been motivated to catch them because having ammonia squirted in your yeah, face not, would not, not be pleasant. Not nice, no. Yeah, oh, these Orcadians are tough. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's interesting because we still hear a lot of the great train robbery mm. in the mid-60s. Mm. However, this one was a mm. larger one. Mm. Yeah. So this next item was in the Orcadian in December 2003. And December the 9th is the anniversary of the day in 1916 when Orkney pubs and bars were subjected to the most draconian legislation. Orkney had survived the first two years of World War I with the population more than doubled by the influx of servicemen and, understandably, an accompanying increase in cases of drunkenness. <laughs> as early as October 1914, the closure of Kirkwall bars had been brought forward from 9pm to 8pm but the Orcadians still complained of scenes of debauchery and drunkenness in the streets. Shock horror. <laughs> yes. The Orkney police report for 1915 showed that 382 people had been apprehended for offences under the influence of drink, 208 of whom were handed over to the naval authorities. And so it was on December the 9th, 1916, that the Defence of the Realm Act introduced a complete ban on spirits and a no-treating rule, which meant the drinkers couldn't buy around in Orkney pubs. At the same time, the licensing hours were restricted to just four and a half hours a day, from noon to 2.30pm, and then again from 6pm to 8pm. The legacy of these restrictions was to continue for more than half a century. Well, that was a long while, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, we had our restrictions with the 6pm closing, so oh, these yes, must have been liberated in the 60s like ours was. Yeah. Indeed, at the end of World War I, the temperance movement, movement flourished, and in 1920, Strumness electors voted to go dry and ban licensed premises in the bur in the brewery. Strumness was to remain dry right through to 1948, when the Strumness Hotel Bar was reopened. Kirkwall never went dry, and even in the capital city, electors did vote to restrict the number of licences, to the extent that, in 1927, there were only two hotels with public bars, the Kirkwall and the St Ola. The Kirkwall electorate mellowed a couple of years later and in 1929 voted to repeal the temperance restrictions and to allow new liquor licences to be granted. The 1913 Temperance Act, which allowed this area of prohibition, continued in force until 1975, when the Orkney Parish of Ham became the last in Scotland to vote to lift the restrictions on drink licences. Even in Kirkwall, however, legal restrictions limiting drinking hours remained in force right into 1970. It was only in 1957 that Kirkwall's licensing court and the county licensing court agreed that closing time in local bars could be extended from 9pm to 9.30pm during the summer. And it was in 1981 when Sheriff A.A. MacDonald overruled Orkney's licensing board and allowed Kirkwall's Torvho Inn, then the only public house in town, to open on Sundays for the first time 
So they mm. must they must have suffered. But mind you, they all made their own beer, I think, anyway. So it wouldn't have made much difference. Well, that's true, and that was the trouble uh, with any prohibition yeah. regime, wasn't it? Yeah, they yeah. made their own. But I brew. think they they did make because I know my grandmother made her own mm. um, brew. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Now, this next little article was in the South Wales Echo on the 29th of November, 1889, about a joke in Lurwick. The youth of Lurwick have, have on several evenings lately taken into their heads to play off practical jokes. The latest one happened the other evening in the council chambers after a meeting of the council had been held. About 11 o'clock in the evening, while the hall keeper was closing up for the night, he observed that the lights were out of the chambers, were still on in the chambers. On striking a light, he was amazed to see a large cow standing on top of the table, quietly making her supper from a large number of cabbages which had been laid before her. Around her were placed many chairs, and she seemed very comfortably housed for the evening. On her horns was a label with the words, guilty or not guilty. The animal was at once turned out by the hall keeper. The police are anxiously trying to learn who put the cow there. <laughs> yeah, I know, um, so I can remember my father telling me how they put the shafts of a dray through through a bicycle and then tipped the dray up so that the bicycle was up in the air. <laughs> but that was sort of things to do with Halloween because they used to do, well, it was mischief mm. they called there and there, but so I don't know whether it's, but how they got the cow onto the table, I don't know, but anyhow. Mm. Mm. So it's quite delightful, really, that, the police didn't have any more serious crimes and they could investigate, <laughs> they could launch an investigation into how the cow got Good there. there yeah. <laughs> now, this piece was written in September 1987 about the Widow's Trust, which still did good works after 119 years. Most people know that the widows' homes in Lerwick were built by Arthur Anderson. Any relation there, um, Peter? Sadly, I don't think so yeah. because he was probably wealthy. Yeah, well, he was the co-founder of the <laughs> P&O line, hence the Anderson name for the homes. But few are aware the quite separate Shetland Widows' Trust. The trust was set up with a bequest from Anderson's estate when he died in 1868 and 119 years later still provides small pensions for widows or of seamen and for a few single women connected with the sea. Last year, 44 beneficiaries throughout Shetland received £40 each from the trust, and this year they were given 45 The P&O group contributed an extra $5 for each recipient to mark the 150th anniversary of the company. Several of the recipients were visited recently by the senior trustee, Mrs Molly Johnson, who travelled to Shetland from her home in London with her son Arthur, also a trustee. The other members of the trust, uh, Mrs Johnson, Johnson's daughter, Lady Price, and son-in-law, Sir David Price. Mm, mm. Mm. Bit of high society there. Mm. That's great. <laughs> So that a bequest made all that time ago, yeah. there's funds still being distributed. Yes. There may be small amounts, but there's yeah. still funds there, which yeah. is great. Now, from the Shetland Times nearly 130 years ago, which would be in the 1890s, mm. from a Sandwick correspondent, threshing the corn could be heard at almost every door with the knocks of the flails on the barn floor and the laughter of the young folks as they work and make love to each other at the same time <laughs> yeah, no, is very <laughs> enjoyable. <laughs> the mind boils. I wonder how much work was actually getting done. <laughs> 
A curiosity, however, in the shape of a threshing machine has just made its appearance at Hoswick for the first time. Mr. Malcolm Hellcrow, one of the old sort of land proprietors in Shetland, has the honour of bringing it to his place, and we are told that he also was the man who brought the first cart to the village. Surely the people should bless him for being the means of saving them so much from the slavery of carrying on the back and transporting manure and peat and preventing the arms from being too much strained and threshing out the corn, not to speak of the time which would be saved. Yes, I really had to laugh when I read that article. But I suppose a roll in the straw would break the monotony, the tiresome threshing, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, yes, and I suppose um, that threshing machine gave more time for the oh, rolls yes. in the straw. <laughs> more rolls in the straw, yeah, I not Right. And, all right, in the, 19, in the 1880s, Lerwick was changing rapidly. As the great herring fishing, fishery of this era developed, there were new streets and potential streets to name. Forty years previously, there had been a general labelling of streets in the town, but some of the names formulated then had come obsolete or had never caught on. An impression got round that the councillors of that era were anxious to honour their Scandinavian ancestors. Certainly, Arthur Lawrenson, the man who decorated the new town hall a few years previously, had that aim. As we all know, the place is full of stained glass commemorating Norse kings and earls. The commissioners of police had a different attitude. They regarded the street naming project as a bit of fun. The fact there are streets with names like King Harold Street and St Magnus Street is pure chance. The commissioners regarded some of the old names as undignified. Whiskey Lane, for instance. They replaced it with Market Street. Immediately to the west, a new street was coming into existence. The General Purposes Committee proposed that it should be called Queen Margaret Street. What Queen Margaret they had in mind was not known. Discussion then commenced about the four so-called cross streets east of Harold Street. The northmost one was already known as Slaughterhouse Road. The commissioners immediately renamed it Harbour Street and still called that today. There was more controversy about the next street. The committee wanted to call it King Eric Street. Again, process arose about the prefix King. Councillor Lease pointed out that such a name as Eric Street would be utterly devoid of meaning without King attached. It would give the impression, he said, that it had been named in honour of some old Cunningsburg Eric. <laughs> I thought that was quite funny. It, <laughs> Eric was a popular Christian name in Cunningsburg. It was agreed to call it King Eric Street, as it's still called. <laughs> so the things city councillors talk about sort of I, think, so, of I, I don't think things have changed no, much. Still they yeah. <laughs> the biggest argument of all were about the next cross street, the one that ran from Market Green, where the library now stands, to Bruh Road. It was already called Leather Lane, and, and, and for some reason also Gordy's Road, not names that appealed to the commissioners. The committee proposal was that it should be called St Magnus Street. There were howls of protest. 
Why should they not name the street in honour of Bailey Robertson, one councillor suggested, or some other notable man of the present day, instead of going back and taking names of men to whom they knew nothing? There, were ge- there was general lack of knowledge among the commissioners about St Magnus. Councillor Least explained that Magnus was the patron saint of the islands, but his colleagues were not impressed. Councillor Duncan preferred St Paul, who was said to have come to Britain, and he said he may have visited Shetland. The chairman said that he did not see any reason for bringing in the (laughs) saints. The chairman thought that Queen Street would be a better idea, and Councillor Lisk retorted, Are we so poverty-struck that we cannot get names without going to the royal family? (laughs) There is already Albert Wharf, a Victoria Pier, a Queen's Lane, and also Prince Alfred Street. And that is surely sufficient. (laughs) (laughs) The eventual compromise could not have been more bland. Councillor Harrison said Park Street would be a very good name. Leek held out for St Magnus and Stowe for St Paul, but Park Street won the day. The commissioners were the body responsible for street names, but sometimes they accepted ideas from the outside world. A few days later, the trustees for the Fewers and Heritors of Lerwick, who owned much of the land in the new town, discussed the commissioners' proposals. They liked them all except Park Street. They argued that a much better name would be Union Street. Their suggestion had nothing to do with the Act of Union. It was based on the idea that the street in question united the old and new towns. Union Street, the name became, and so it remains. There remained the problem of St Magnus, who still had adherence. The solution was simple. The street west of Market Street ceased to be Queen Margaret Street, whoever she was, and became St Magnus Street forever. There was an amusing sequel to the Commissioner's deliberations, The people who now lived in Harold Street and District didn't like the name at all. They took a petition to the commissioners to say that they wanted to live in King Harold Street after all, after all their arguing. (laughs) Councillor Duncan said, that is a large and influential memorial and we should accede to the request made. And let us do it with all due gravity and without any of the buffoonery we had at a former meeting. And so they did. Yeah, I think they must have had quite a bit of fun in those meetings, yes. (laughs) Well, it's that time again when we have come to the end of our programme. Thank you again, Peter, for helping out today. You may call on, we may call on you again as it's nice to have a male voice on the programme for a change. Cheerio until next month. Goodbye. (laughs) 